1985, an educator and cultural critic named Neil Postman wrote a, a shocking and prophetic book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. I don't know if anybody's read Amusing Ourselves to Death, a few people out there, uh, the, the subtitle is Public Discourse in the Age of Show Business. Back when I read the book in college, I remember the front cover of it just had this family of skeletons sitting in front of a TV that was on in the living room, amusing ourselves to death, public discourse in the age of show business. Perhaps some of you have read Postman. As the title and the subtitle suggest, he takes the reader on a journey of the, the history of media to show how entertainment has begun and continued to uh, erode our society's ability to think deeply, to think well, to reason, to understand argument and logic and the sequential ordering of propositions strung together. Our entertainment and our culture has, has begun to, to erode that from us and, and not reward that in our culture and has harmed us in many ways. He begins one of his chapters with an illustration from the 1858 Illinois senatorial debate between Abraham Lincoln and the incumbent Stephen Douglas. They had a series of seven debates, and the debates all followed the same format. If you've read the book, you're familiar with this. The, the, the first speaker would get up, and he would make his opening statements for an hour. And then the Second man would take the platform and he would have an hour and a half to respond to that first hour. And then they would save another 30 minutes for the original speaker to give his final rebuttal. Three hours in all. An hour, 60 minutes to begin, 90 minutes to respond, 30 minutes for a rebuttal. And that was considered a short debate for those two gentlemen. There was an occasion earlier than that where Stephen Douglas spoke for three hours. And Lincoln was about to get up and give his three-hour response. And he noted that it was five o'clock. People were going to be hungry. So he called time out. He says, you guys go home, eat, and come back for my three-hour response. And they did. These debates would draw 20,000 people to come and hear these men talk about what they believed for hours on end in these senatorial debates. Needless to say, times, they have changed. If you've watched any political debates today, and that stretches credulity to even call those <laughs> Debates, they're, they're, they're mere, mere sound bites by comparison today. And it's not just our political debates, though, and this is part of Postman's argument. He's giving that as an illustration of a bigger issue that we have. We're a culture of sound bites. We're a culture of quick images. Watch the news and just, just kind of blur your eyes for a second and see how, how fast the, 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 the screen changes if we even watch the news anymore. Instead of just checking out a tweet for what's happening today. But quick sound bites, quick images, thoughtless social media posts, small windows of time 
I have to think that surely somewhere, somebody between 1985 and when Postman is writing today, surely somebody somewhere along that line has made the joke as, 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 our, as our attention span has devolved and as books have turned into blogs and blogs have turned into tweets, surely somewhere along the line somebody has joked, what's next? Are we just going to send funny pictures with words on them to each other? Yes, it's exactly what we've done. And I'm a part of it. I'm not going to try to solve all of those problems. So if you're, if you're listening to that and you're like, yes, do something about that. What, what can we do? That, that's not the point of the passage today. That, that's a larger issue. It's a larger thing for us to tackle. However, what I want us to do is I want us, I want you to recognize that the cultural air that you breathe has put you in a place where you may need a recalibration on what is essential to do with your time. The, the, the atmosphere that we are in and the, the, the place that we all, all of us, every one of us are right now has put us in a place that we need a recalibration of what it is that we do with our time. What type of effort and intentionality would be wise for you to employ toward activities that are truly good and truly restful and truly building up for your soul. What might you be missing out on by going with this cultural flow rather than fighting against it for something richer and something deeper and something more meaningful in our interactions and our experiences that would truly be edifying and truly be formative in our lives? Well, our passage today serves, I think, is a bit of that recalibration for us. Our passage today in the book of Acts chapter 20, we are in a, a, a series where we're going through the book of Acts, but in Acts chapter 20, we're going to look at the first 16 verses this morning, and I think what we find here is a recalibration on that topic. And here's what I want to argue from the passage that we will look at. It's this, we must devote significant time and effort toward Christian encouragement. We must devote significant time and effort toward Christian encouragement. If you have a Bible, open up to the book of Acts chapter 20 as we receive this recalibration. Acts chapter 20, if you don't have a Bible, you can find one right there in front of you in your pew. Feel free to take that with you as a free gift that you might have God's word to read and to learn all that he would have for you. We must devote significant time and effort toward Christian encouragement. As an outline for this, if you're taking notes or just wanting to kind of mentally follow along, I, I want to look at this passage in, in two, uh, two kind of movements. One, essential to the Christian life is encouragement. Two, essential to Christian encouragement is the gathering. Two points. Essential to the Christian life is encouragement and essential to Christian Encouragement is the gathering. Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews... 
As he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean and uh, son of uh, Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. And the next day we touched at Samos. And the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. This is God's word. Number one, essential to the Christian life is encouragement. The section that we are now in in the book of Acts is, if you've been following along, if you've read this section recently in your Bible, we're walking through what are known as Paul's missionary journeys. He has these three missionary journeys, and the section specifically that we're in right now is what scholars call Paul's farewell tour. This section right here is kind of a bridge, a transition between the end of Paul's third missionary journey and Paul's entering into Jerusalem where he will be arrested and continue his ministry from prison. And so this farewell tour that he is on, we get this in Acts chapter 20. And, and as such, even as we read it, you notice it's kind of like a travel log. Right? Paul went here and he went to that place and he traveled there and he spent so much time here. And this person was with him. And, and it serves as a travel log of the places he went and how long he spent there and who was with him. And it shifts back and forth, this whole section of Acts 20 and 21, shifts back and forth between a little bit of travel narrative. And then Luke will focus on an event that took place. And then he'll jump back out to a little bit more travel narrative. And then he'll focus in on an event that took place in Ephesus. And then a little bit more travel narrative. And, then, and he just goes back and forth in Acts chapter 20 and 21. Now as we read that, you might wonder, what do we do with such a section of Scripture? Maybe it appears to you as, as uh, one of those sections in the Old Testament of just lists of names or something like that. We just have lists of locations and Paul's journeys that he's on. What, what are we meant to do with such sections of Scripture? Well, for this specifically, there's a word that shows up three times that I think we should focus on. 
I, I think it, it helps us as we're reading this narrative to, to understand just what the focus is of these journeys, just what the, 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 the purpose of them were, the, the nature of Paul's travels, what is the point that Luke is trying to drive at and even telling us what Paul was up to. There's a word that occurs three times, and it's the word encourage. Encourage. Look at verse 1. It says, after the uproar ceased, and this is the gospel riot that Garrett previously preached from Acts 19. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And by that, when it says Paul sent for the disciples, it doesn't mean the, uh, the 12 apostles. It, it means the believers who were in that city. He sent for those believers to, to, to come, uh, uh, to gather together. So Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed. Look at verse 2. So he departs and he goes to Macedonia, verse 2. And when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement. So presumably in every place that Paul visited on this journey, every place that he went, what he was doing, what he was about was getting together with those Christians and those churches and encouraging them. That was the point. That was his goal. That's what he was up to. Look down at verse 12. Again, we'll, we'll touch on the... Eutychus story and, and point number two once we get there. But after the boy is raised from the dead, it says that they, can, they, they continue to fellowship, they continue to worship together, and it wraps up, if you note, by saying they took the youth away and they were not a little comforted. The Greek word there is the exact same Greek word that we have in verse one and verse two for encouragement. So they took the youth away and they were not a little encouraged, not a little comforted. That's three times in our passage that Luke uses that word, to be comforted or to be encouraged. So I think as we kind of step back and look at this passage and say, what is happening here with the travel log and everything that is going on, I think the point that we're meant to see is Paul's intentionality, Paul's focus, his uh, priority that he has of encouraging the saints. Now that word encourage itself, it's the Greek word parakaleo. I, I give that to you. You can't always do this with Greek words. And so if, that, if that's an area, I know some of you like to do word studies as you're studying scripture and kind of, kind of uh, 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 investigate a little bit of the original language. You can't always take a word and dissect it like I'm about to. So parakaleo, beside or alongside of, and to call. So to, to call alongside of. Again, don't do that with every Greek word that you ever, that you ever, in the same way we can't do that with English. I had a Greek professor that used to draw a big rectangle on the board with wings, and he'd write the word butterfly. <laughs> right? You can't just take two parts of a word and dissect them and be like, well, this is what it means. Right? The word understand in English. It's not that we're understand somehow. Or under, it's, no, it, you can't always do that, but sometimes you can. And, and uh, one of the ways that parakaleo is used in Greek is to, is to come alongside of somebody. To either call somebody to your side or for you to go to their side in a way that would be uh, uh, beneficial and edifying and, and, and stabilizing and, and uh, building up, spurring one another along. At other times, the situation is a bit more urgent when the, the word is, is used in Greek and it, it's translated as, as to urge or to beg or to implore. That I, 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 I parakaleo you, I, I urge you, I beg you. It's, it's coming alongside in a, in a, in a, in a very uh, intense way to try to encourage somebody toward some action or some 
belief. So what you're doing with, with encouragement is that it's an, it's an interaction where you're coming alongside of somebody or calling somebody a, alongside of you and you're adding courage to them. You're, you're building them up. You're helping to shoulder whatever burdens that they have and you're taking them on to yourself in a way that would be beneficial to them. You're through your speech or your conduct instilling a resolve in somebody else or boosting their spirit in a way so that they are empowered for the Christian life, that they are fueled for following Jesus and living for him. That's what it means to encourage somebody. And as such, as Christians, the content of our encouragement is Christ. The content of our encouragement is Jesus. And that's why for us to encourage in a Christian way is to come alongside of other people and give them more Jesus. Point their eyes to him. Remind them of the love that God has shown for us in Christ that he would send his son to die for us. His love for us, his focus on us, his, his uh, cherishing of us in a way that would help us and spur us along and build us up in our faith. The content of Christian encouragement is Jesus. And friends, this is what Paul was all about. Let's look at the text again. And as we look at the text, I want to walk back through this. I want to show you four evidences, I think, for the reason that we can say Paul's priority in ministry was encouragement among these churches. Four things that I think Luke gives us in this text to see Paul's priority of encouragement. The first is that his traveling is evidence of it. His traveling is evidence of it. Encouragement. If you look again at those first two verses, it's what he made sure he did as he departed Ephesus. Then he goes to Macedonia and visits a number of places, and it was his goal in Macedonia. And then down in verse 12, as we looked at, it was the result of his time in Troas. He's traveling to all of these places not to take in the sights, not to check things off of his bucket list, not because the, the, the route that he was taking was even always the easiest uh, uh, journey between point A and point B. Often it wasn't. He's doing all these things intentionally, not because he has ended extended family that he needs to visit in these areas. No, he's doing it to strengthen and encourage the churches in those places. And this isn't a one-off, right? If you've been following along through the book of Acts, back in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, Paul is in the Galatian region. And this is what Luke writes. Paul is in Galatia, strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them, there's our word again, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Right? Guys, there, there's tribulations coming. There's difficulty coming down the way. Let me come alongside you and add courage to you. These churches in Galatia needed courage added to them. They needed strength and they needed build up. They needed a fresh focus on Jesus because tribulation was coming. The book of Hebrews, chapter 3, verse 13, but exhort one another every day. That's, saying, that's the word, exhort, parakaleo. Encourage one another every day. Exhort one another every day. As long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The author of Hebrews says, listen, you've got sin coming at you. It wants to harden you. It wants to trick you. It wants to lie to you. It wants to deceive you. And it wants to harden your, your heart against Christ. So encourage, add courage to each other. Talk about Jesus. Get together. Build one another up. Edify each other. Do that day by day as long as it's called today so that you're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So tribulation awaits us. Sin wants to harden us. We must be devoted to encouragement. So Paul does it everywhere he goes, and he goes places in order to do it. 
You see, just in his travels alone, we see what a priority this was for him. It was massively important. All right, number two. So again, four ways that we see Paul's priority of encouragement. One is through his traveling. Two is through his writing. Now, for this point, I'm, I'm kind of I'm trying to put us between the lines here in the text. But still, we're going to see from Scripture what Paul was up to. So his, not just his traveling, but his writing while he was traveling. Look again at verse 1. In verse 1, it says, he says, farewell, and he departs for Macedonia. And it's from Macedonia that Paul writes a letter to the Corinthian church. We know this letter to be the book of 2 Corinthians. Now listen to this. Again, Paul's traveling. His point is encouragement. Listen to how Paul starts the book of 2 Corinthians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all parakaleo, the God of all comfort, who parakaleos us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to parakaleo those who are in any affliction with the parakaleo with which we ourselves are parakaleoed by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in parakaleo too. If we are afflicted, it is for your parakaleo and salvation. And if we are parakaleoed, it is for your parakaleo, which you experience when we patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that you share in our sufferings, so you will also share in our parakaleo. Paul, in his free time, on his missionary journeys, when he wasn't actively encouraging and comforting the saints, was sitting down and saying, paper and pen, who else needs comforted? Who else needs encouraged? I'm writing off a letter to them, reminding them that we have a God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our afflictions, and, and God wants to use both, both his comfort that he gives us and the church around us to comfort us. That is what we need. Am I convincing you yet? This is what Paul was all about. Then he leaves. That's verse 1. Verse 2, he travels again. This is back in Acts 20. Verse 2, he goes, uh, when he had gone through those regions and given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. Verse 3, there he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. He gets back to Macedonia. Guess what he does? Writes another letter. You may have heard of this one. It's called the Book of Romans. Gets back to Macedonia, writes a book to the Roman church. Listen, you can't make this up. Listen to what Paul says at the beginning of the book of Romans. This is how he begins. First, he tells them how thankful he is for them. He, he, he tells them that he's praying for them. He tells them he desires to go and see them. And then Romans chapter 1, verse 11. For I long to see, uh, for I long to see you, that I may impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually pericolaed by each other's faith, by yours and mine. So as he's sitting down and firing off these letters to these other churches, that's on his mind. That's what he wants to do. That's the goal. Not just for them, but for him as well. He writes to the Romans, I long to be you and I plan to come with you that you may encourage me and that I may encourage you. That you may comfort me and that I may comfort you. So he was traveling to accomplish it, and then he was thinking about it in his downtime. And he was writing to Christians elsewhere to encourage them and inform them of his plans. 
where they could get together for more encouragement in Christ, more reminding each other about Jesus. Maybe this would encourage you. Just Paul's, just as a side note there, Paul's multiple ways that he encourages people. And if some of you are sitting and be like, where's the, where's the downtime? I don't have any free, free time. That sounds like a nice commodity to have. But you just see Paul using different ways. Yeah, if you can't get together with somebody face-to-face, shoot him a text. You're not always going to be able to have that time to expend in different seasons of life and at home with kids and school's busy and those kinds of things. But there's other ways to creatively encourage and build one another up. I said there were four. Those were the first two. We saw his, his traveling and then his writing while traveling. Number three, his companions for traveling, I think, are an evidence of, uh, of, of his encouragement of the saints, his companions for traveling. So back in our text in Acts 20, if you pick it up in verse 4, he runs through this list of names, right? Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus. And Gaius of Derby and Timothy. And the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. That word us right there lets you know that Luke is back on the journey. You'll, you'll pick up at different times throughout the book of Acts when Luke is with Paul in his travels and when he's not. So right here, Luke is joined back up. So Luke is there as well. And so we see that, that uh, as he gives this list of, of, these, of these people, there's actually seven brothers that are mentioned here, not counting Luke, who was apparently with him as well. But it's important that Luke knows where these, notes where these brothers are from. Because they're all churches that Paul planted and strengthened. So earlier in Acts 14, when we were talking about Paul and how he was going around strengthening and encouraging these churches, these are the people. These are all delegates from the churches that Paul planted and spent his ministry encouraging. This is, these are churches where he, he invested time to strengthen and encourage on his first two missionary journeys. So that list of names is kind of like a display case of the grace of God in those other locations and Paul's commitment to, to uh, planting and strengthening those churches. His companions, however, aren't only a display case of what God had done through Paul's ministry of encouragement in the past. It's also a sign of the ministry of encouragement that he's moving on to as well. The reason that these brothers are here gathered together and traveling with Paul is that they have a huge bag of money. So what has happened? Now, Luke doesn't, for whatever reason, Luke doesn't focus on this in this part of the narrative. But you can read uh, Romans 15. You can read 1 Corinthians 16. You can read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Those four chapters show that Paul, what Paul was doing is he was going up and he was collecting these delegates from churches who were collecting monies because there, there, there had been a famine in Jerusalem and the saints there were poor and in need. And so what Paul was doing, he's going around and he's getting these delegates together with money from those churches and they are on breakneck speed to try to get down to Jerusalem, our text tells us, by the day of Pentecost. So that they could go down there and encourage the saints in Jerusalem with this financial gift that they so desperately needed. So you see, this, this is what Paul was all about. We see it in his traveling, we see it in his writing and his traveling, and we see it in the people who were traveling with him. He was on a mission of encouragement. And having spent time in those northern regions, he wants to get to Jerusalem and encourage the saints there and deliver this financial gift, this massive financial gift over to them. First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians 8 actually says he's bringing all these brothers along with him so that nobody would question their, their, uh, their kind of honor and their being above board with such a massive gift that they had collected, such a generous gift it says. And they're on the way down there. Fourth, 
way that we see Paul's priority of encouragement in our text is his avoiding of death while traveling. You might think this is a stretch. Hear me out. So we see him traveling. We see him writing while he's traveling. We see him traveling with people who are showcases of God's grace and his encouragement in the churches. And then we see him avoiding death while traveling. Look at it. Look in verse 3. There's a note here that Luke gives. It says that there, was a, there he spent three months and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Paul was made aware of this plot that was made against him in some way, and I don't know if the plot was going to be at a port of call or if it was going to be some sort of attack at sea or whatever it was going to be, but he knows I can't take that boat. I'm traveling by land. And so, and then again, if you look down in verse 13, he takes a land route down in verse 13, which was a, a, a mountainous, rugged route that he took um, in verse 13, to, and the same thing, to, to, it, it doesn't give the reason there, it may have been a different, Luke doesn't give us that it there was a plot there as well, but it could have been the exact same reasons as what we see in verse 3. But Paul is aware in verse 3 of a plot made against his life, and so he changes his plans. One thing you have to remember, anytime you see Paul avoiding death, is that he gives us an interpretation of that. If you see Paul escaping danger at any point in these narratives... Paul tells us how to understand that, how to think about it. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul says this, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul says, to, to die is to gain and to live is Christ. If I am to live, this is verse uh, 22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two, <laughs> between dying and living. Paul says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul was constantly torn between his strong, abiding desire to go and be with Jesus and knowing that if I stay, it's for the good of other people. God's going to use me to encourage these churches. God's going to use me to build other Christians up. God's going to use me to continue gospel ministry and evangelism and missions. And then he says, you know what? I think that's what he's going to have me do. <laughs> Convinced of this, I think I'm going to remain on so your faith can grow. Paul wants to be with Jesus, but he knows if the Lord keeps him alive, whether that's by providential guiding and supernatural protection or by Paul's own decision-making to go by land instead of by boat, the reason has nothing to do with Paul's desire to save his own skin. It has nothing to do with it. Or to prolong his life in some way. Or the fear that he has of the pain of death. He does not care. No, make no mistake, the reason he took that land route instead of that sea route in Acts 20 is because he needed to strengthen and encourage more Christians. He wanted to make sure that the saints in Jerusalem were ministered to and cared for. He wanted the gospel to keep pushing into places where Christ hadn't already been made. That's his driving force. Church, do you see why I said at the beginning that I want to argue that you must devote significant time and effort toward Christian encouragement. We see it modeled here. 
We see the, the, the supreme value of it and how important it is in the life of Christians to be encouraged and for us to encourage others. You might say, okay, what do we do with that? The Puritans had a word for this, I think, that we've lost. I don't know what my application is here. Maybe start using this word. I don't know. Let me tell you about it, though. So the Puritans had a word that they called conference. Now, I think it's helpful because I think it fills in the gap of something as a, as a pastor, and maybe you as Christians, as we're often talking about the good things that, that, that we need to do with one another in the Christian life, and, and we have words for most of it. What do we need to do to grow in the Christian life? What kind of things, what kind of disciplines do we need to stir our affections for Jesus? Well, you we need to pray. We need to spend time and, and uh, communion with God and time praying and conversing with God and talking with him and calling out to him for all that we need and praising him and confessing our sins. We need to pray. And you need to read your Bible. Right? God has given us his word to instruct us. Everything that we need for life and godliness is in his word. And so we need to huddle up around the Bible. We need to spend personal time and personal devotion soaking in the scriptures. We always need more and more for this word to work its way through us. We need to read the Bible. And then there's something else. Pray, Bible, and then spend good time with Christians where you're talking about things that will bring you joy and lead to your edification. That's what Paul was doing here. The Puritans called it conference. Let me read you a couple of these. And when they talked about conference, it, it was, it, they applied it in all kinds of different areas. William Perkins, late 1500s. Talked about conference and your family. He writes this. He says, use meditation and conference about heavenly things. Assemble your family together, conference with them, what they have learned in the sermon, instruct them and catechize them, and read the Bible together or some other godly book together. That's what they called it. Get together and conference together as a family. Nehemiah Wellington, this is in the 1600s. Talking about conference and marriage. He talked about how private prayer was followed by much sweetness and profit in reading and praying with my family. And these meditations and conference I had with my wife remained with me all the day. Kind of called a conference together with his wife. He says, hey, let's talk more about Jesus. Let's spend, let's linger together in a way that would be building up of our faith in Christ and talk about spiritual things. Richard Baxter, mid-1600s, talked about conference and pastoral ministry. He says, you know we cannot speak so familiarly and come so close to everyone's case in a common sermon as we may do by conference. So he's saying that we, we can preach a sermon as I'm doing right now and you guys could listen to it, but Baxter says that, that, that's good, but there's still much more we can do by conferencing with you. As pastors. So he says, we, we can't come so close to everyone's case and common sermon as we may do by conference, and therefore I urged you to allow me now and then an hour of sober talk with you when all other matters might be set aside and we could conference together. One more pastoral development for you elders here. Richard Baxter again says, study, pray, conference, and practice, for in these four ways your abilities will be increased. Study, pray, conference, and practice. 
I want us to see just through Paul's travel journal how focused and how he was on encouragement of the saints and therefore how important that must be to us. If it was that important to him, that's something that we need. I think the Puritans having a word for it puts it on, put it on their radar in a way that maybe it's not on ours. Sure, I'm having conversations with my wife. Am I conferencing with her? Sure, we're getting together as our paths cross. Are, are we conferencing together? Are we conferring with one another in a way that would make Jesus big and that would have us grow in our faith? Essential to the Christian life is encouragement. Point number two, essential to Christian encouragement is the gathering. Essential to Christian encouragement as a gathering. So sandwiched between these travel journals that we have here in our, packs, in our text, what Luke does is he zooms us into Troas. And he says, okay, that's, what, that's generally what Paul was doing. He was going around encouraging people. Now let me give you a picture of what that looked like in Troas. So look again with me in the text at Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Incidentally, I'm not worried at all how long I preach this morning. In this text, I feel like I can go as long as I want. Stay away from the windows. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, he says, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away and were not a little comforted or encouraged. So on the first day of the week, these Christians were gathered together to break bread. This right here, you should mark this in your Bible. This is the earliest instance that we have in Scripture of what becomes a regular practice for Christians and what we are doing here today. It's the earliest instance that we have of, uh, of, of uh, Christians gathering, not for the, the Jewish Sabbath, but gathering on Sunday, the first day of the week, as a Christian day of worship. Now, slightly earlier than this, in Acts chapter 16, we do see Paul writing to the church at Corinth, and he says, set money aside. Again, they're, made, they're putting together this collection. He says, set money aside on the first day of the week. So again, presumably, they were gathering together for worship. They're taking a collection as a part of their worship together. But Christians do this in remembrance and to celebrate the day that Jesus rose from the grave. You can look at Luke 24.1. You can look at John 20.19 where we say this is the day that Jesus rose from the grave. And so Christians in remembrance of that and to celebrate that gather together on the first day of the week on Sunday to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. John and Revelation 1 verse 10 calls this the Lord's Day, which we'll often speak of it around here. You might hear us talk about the Lord's Day. If you're here with us and you're not a Christian or maybe you're new to, to coming to church, I, I just want to say by way of reminder, this is why we gather. We don't gather because we think we're earning anything by our gathering here this morning. We don't gather because God lacks something that we are providing for him as we come together. No, we gather, and Christians uh, th throughout all places and times have gathered together on Sunday to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. That we, lost in our sins, 
infected by, by, by sin, having a, a sin nature that we could do nothing about, God answered that deepest problem that we have by sending Jesus to die in our place, bearing our penalty on his body on the cross, that by, but we, by, by just trusting him, turning from our sins and trusting in Jesus, might have life. In the same way that he was resurrected, the Bible says if we trust in him, we will one day be raised to glory and immortality. We will be as he is. And so we gather together. There's nothing to build us up more than coming together and reminding ourselves that our biggest problem has been taken care of. The biggest anxiety that we could ever have, the biggest worry that we could ever have, the biggest barrier we could ever have, the the biggest thing that would ever cause us stress, the, the, the biggest issue that we have in life has been eradicated, sin and death itself, through the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And so that's why we come, that's why we sing. We're not earning anything, we're not adding something that God lacks. We're celebrating Jesus, that's why we come here, and we're glad you're here with us. Well, in Acts chapter 20, verse 7 The believers in Troas were gathered together on the Lord's day to worship, and Paul and company are with them. It says that they had gathered to break bread together. One of the essential elements of a local church, indeed one of the elements that defines what a local church is, is the breaking of bread together. The Lord's Supper, where we take bread and remember Christ's body given for us, and we drink of the cup remembering Christ's blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And that's what they were doing here together. They were breaking bread together. This is not a primary application of this text. This is one of my little kind of sidebar things, but but I think it's a good encouragement. If you're not in the habit of gathering with Christians, even when you travel, might I commend that to you? If you're not in the habit of gathering with Christians, maybe even when you're on vacation, might I commend that to you? Some of the sweetest times that I've had have been visiting other churches and meeting other saints and being encouraged by them. Or one time when we were living in China, we were on vacation on a beach in Thailand, and it was Sunday morning, and we just pulled up Google Maps, and we're like, it looks like there's a church building over there. And so we made our way to this, this little Thai, it was a Baptist church, a little Thai Baptist church. Couldn't understand anything the preacher was saying. I could tell by the tunes of the songs. I'm like, I know that one. I know this song. I could try to sing it in English. Uh, and, and somebody came to the back who kind of spoke English and translated for us. Which is incredibly blessed just by seeing other saints worship together. It's good for your own soul. It's a blessing to meet other believers and engage in worship from a different angle. Maybe seeing new things and hearing new emphases. Also, it's a blessing to the church that you would gather with that you might be there that morning, that you might bless them. It's a statement to your family or to those that you may be visiting of the importance of gathering on the Lord's day. It's a statement to everybody around that this is of vital importance. We must not neglect this. Again, don't hear that as a law. I'm not going to start checking in when you get back from vacation to find out if you went to church somewhere. Not a law. It's an encouraging thing that I found in my own walk with the Lord. would commend it to you. Paul's doing it here. Shows up in Troas, finds a group of believers, worships together with them, breaks bread together. Well, as they come together, we know from early, uh, from, from uh, a number of texts in the Bible, in these early gatherings, they, they probably prayed together here in Troas. They probably sang a, a hymn. 
or a number of hymns together as they gather, gather together. They probably took up a collection, again, for the saints in Jerusalem or for the ministry there in Troas. But there's two elements that Luke does highlight of what they did together. One was the Lord's Supper, which he talks about them gathering together to break bread. And then two is the preaching of God's word. The preaching of God's word. Paul, the, the, in verse, if you look in verse 7 and verse 9, Luke just uses the word that, that he was talking with them, but it's the same word that is used of Paul preaching in the synagogues. When Paul was in the synagogues teaching, it's the exact same word that is used here. Paul is, is teaching, talking to them, not just like, hey, how you doing, what you guys been up to? He, he is talking with them about God's word. He's talking with them about Jesus. He, he's, he's preaching a sermon here. And in verse 11, if you look down at verse 11, uh, the ESV has the word conversed. He conversed with them. That word is a word that, refu- uh, that, that refers to giving an address in a group of people. It's actually the Greek word where we get our word homily from. That's what Paul was doing. He was conversing with them. He was giving a homily. He was speaking, giving an address to a group of people. So there was a sermon here in Troas. And Paul preaches long into the night. He goes until midnight. I want you to note something in verse 7. It doesn't just say that Paul preached a long message. It tells us why Paul preached a long message. Do you see that? Paul talked with them intending to depart the next day, and he prolonged his speech. Their time was limited. He had one evening. He had one shot. He had one evening with them. They had one evening with him, and they were all there for it. They said, our time is limited together. Let's get together, huddle around God's word, and hear what God would have for us. There's no commentary here in the text that Paul's speaking was too long. Look at the text. Find it for me. There's nothing in there that Paul spoke too long. It just said he spoke until midnight. There's no commentary in there if people started kind of filing out the back once he went a little bit too long. Once he, once he got to dinner time, people were like, Paul, come on, we got to eat. Not, look at the text. There's nothing in there about that. Nothing says that Paul spoke too long. There's nothing, no commentary in here about him being long-winded or rambling or verbose. No, he spoke for a long time because he had to. He spoke for a long time because this is what they needed. He spoke for a long time because they had limited time together, and this is what everybody wanted to do with it. Having limited time with each other, here in our day, here and now, having limited time together can cause us to go in one of two directions. It can cause us to just check out, or it causes us to do what they did right here. Think of that in our own context, right? How many times have you been discouraged by how often people leave? How many times do we have to say goodbye? And say, so, well, I ain't doing that again. I'm not building another friendship. People keep leaving. Do you get that from Paul? Paul says, no, our time is limited. Let's gather around. We don't know we have tomorrow. We don't know we have next Sunday. We don't know what we have. Let's get together around God's word. It's too, we have, our time is too limited not to. Friends, let's go in that direction. When I was pastoring in China, in Shanghai, we had a brother start to come to our church who was a, a Uyghur. He's a Christian. You often hear of the 
Uyghur Muslims, as you hear about that, uh, this people group in the news, people often refer to the Uyghur Muslims. They're not just Muslims, they're culturally, but there are Christians among the Uyghur people group as well. We had a brother who started to come to our church who was a Uyghur. And with things that were going on geopolitically, we knew we had a ticking clock with him. We knew we had a limited time with him. And the conversation among the leadership of our church was get together with him every chance you can. He's very likely about to go to a camp somewhere for a long period of time. Get together with him, pray with him, teach him the Bible, memorize scripture. And it did. He disappeared one day. Was gone with limited uh, interaction or no interaction for four years. We kept him in our membership directory. We prayed for him. To this day, I know, I know he's in a better place now than what he was. We've had a couple conversations with him, and I know that the Lord has sustained him. <clears throat> but again, that only happens when we recognize, guys, we're going to say goodbye to some people. Let that not have us flee in the wrong direction against relationship building, against community, against hospitality. May that cause us to press in and say, our time is limited. It is too, we don't know how much time we have. Let's get together for encouragement. Let's get together to build one another up. Look at verse 8. There were many lamps in the room where they were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus sitting in the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Luke mentions that there are many lamps burning. Maybe that sounds like a random uh, uh, kind of detail for him to, to, to add, but it likely sets the scene for what's about to happen, right? You have lamps burning in an upper room. It probably adds warmth to the room. Uh, maybe the, the room is a little oxygen deprived, depending on what the ventilation may have been like up in that upper room. And then just the hypnotic effect of the flames that are flickering all around the room. There's a reason why people have fireplaces and put couches around them and fall asleep on them. There's a hypnotic effect and a warming effect. And so Luke is just setting the scene for us. As you can imagine yourself in that upper room, with it's warm and, and, and uh, the, the lamps are burning. And Paul is talking still longer. And, 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 and this guy Eutychus is starting to drift off and starting to sink into a deep sleep. And then it says he was overcome by sleep, and he falls three stories to his death. Now, some have wondered whether, in fact, Eutychus died or not, but Luke describes him as such. I don't think it's a question in the text. It says, verse 9, that he was taken up dead. Verse 10, Paul throws his body on the young man's body. Now, this is an instance where I, I don't know why the ESV translates it the way that they did I don't think it's a good translation in this instance. Christian Standard Bible, same thing, says that Paul bent over him. If you're reading an NIV or a KJV or a New American Standard, it says that Paul 
put his body on top of the young man's body. Paul threw himself, or he fell upon the young man. Why is that important? Well, one, we read earlier from 1 Kings 17, where Elijah does the same thing in the raising of the dead. 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha does the same thing, stretches his body out on somebody who is dead, brings them back to life. Paul, this instance here of what Paul does is meant to take our minds back to the ministry of Elijah and Elisha and see that Paul is doing the exact same thing here. This boy is dead and Paul raises him back. God, through Paul, raises him back to life. Finally, in verse 12, it explicitly says that they took away the youth and they took him away alive. It's a weird way to speak if he never died. Well, yeah, he's alive. He never died. No, he took him away alive because he was dead. He wasn't just unconscious. He was dead. And God, through Paul, brings him back to life. What do we do with this miraculous raising from the dead? What did they do? What did they do after it? What happens in the text? This boy is raised from the dead. What happens next? They go back to church. Look at verse 11. When they had gone up and broken bread. They had gathered for that. They hadn't done it yet. So when they had gone back up and had broken bread together. They take the Lord's Supper together. That's why they gathered. And so they pressed on. And then Paul starts preaching again. That's the one where we get the word for homily. He addressed them for a long while all the way until dawn. So not only did Paul start preaching and go all the way till midnight, this kid falls out the window, dies, he goes, throws his body on him, raises him back to life. They say, let's get back up there and finish business. They go back up and they go all the way till sunrise. Listen, the point of this passage, you have to get this about the Eutychus passage. The point of this passage is not that Paul spoke too long. Paul and or Luke in no way indicates there was an issue with how long Paul spoke. The point isn't that Paul preached a deathly long sermon, but that he had a message of life and death importance. That's the point. He had a message that they needed to hear. And this is supported. This, this, this is supported by the fact that the miracle doesn't even seem to be the point of the story. You said, not only is the point not that Paul spoke too long, the miracle isn't, isn't even the point of the story here. What do I mean by that? Well, often miracles in the New Testament, when we see them, are there to maybe establish somebody's authority. So Jesus' authority or the apostles' authority, they're used. Miracles and signs and wonders are used as the gospel is pushing into new places and frontiers and new environs where, where God is establishing his messenger and his message. That's all, the, that's all been established here. This church is planted. The people know Paul. They know his authority. It's not a frontier. And so, and we don't even see any commentary there on the text that there's any sort of, uh, you know, think of the ministry of Jesus. Somebody's raised to life and they start running around and jumping and leaping and doing all this kind of stuff and going and telling people. There's none of that here. What is there? They go back to church. That's what's here in the text. This is a remarkable, I think Luke mentions it. So why does Luke mention the Eutychus story? One, it's a pretty remarkable event, right? So if you're writing, writing an account, like you're not going to leave out the Eutychus thing. It was pretty cool, right? So like you got you to involve the Eutychus story. So I think Luke invol- includes it because A, it was a pretty remarkable event. And B, I think it serves to highlight what was really important, which was the gathering of Christians around the table and around the pulpit in Troas. That's what they were there for. 
Listen, what an amazing, you got to, what an amazing encouragement and challenge to us today. Something amazing happened in Troas, but it's not what you think. Something amazing happened in Troas. A kid was raised from the dead, and yet there's something even more amazing that happens, and it's something that you get to experience every single week that you want to. The gathering around God's word with God's people for encouragement. The breaking of bread and the celebrating of Jesus together. You might say, oh, if I could just experience a miracle in my life, what a boost that would be to my faith. If I could just see the raising of the dead, how, how important and how, how impactful would that be to my faith? And Luke says, yeah, 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 miracle, great. Get back to the Lord's table in the pulpit. That's what you need. That's enough. And you see here in the text, they don't, you've got to see this. They, they, they didn't see a dead boy raised back from life and say, great, that's all I needed. Let's go home. A, a miraculous raising from the dead, that's enough. Let's all call it a day and get out of here. They said, praise God that, the, that Eutychus was raised from the dead. Let's get back to hearing from God's word with God's people. They said, give me more gospel. Give me more Bible. Give me more truth expositionally delivered to me. Give me more remembrance of Jesus' death and resurrection. Give me more, more, uh, more of God's word. That is, it is sweeter to me than honey. This word sustains me. The gathering of the saints to celebrate Jesus in community stirs my affections for him in a way that transforms and shapes my life. Give me more of that. That is what we need. Church, that's what we need today. The preaching and teaching of God's word must be taken seriously. It does feel a little awkward being the preacher telling you this. But I feel like I, we would miss the point of the passage if I didn't say it. It should be said no matter who is up here because the point isn't who is up here. The point is what we're speaking about. God's word, the authority of God's word, the, the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need that. We have to take it seriously. Not because of the preacher, but because of the word. Let me four quick encouragements. If, if this is true, and I think it is, so that we, essential to the Christian life is encouragement. Essential to Christian encouragement is the gathering where we have the Lord's Supper, where we have the word preached. Let me give you four quick encouragements about how to hear the word. Would you listen as a student? Listen as a student. Be attentive to what is being preached. Be attentive to what God's word says. For me, that, that means, that, means uh, that I sit down. That means that it, this is why we, we give you pages in your service guide to take notes. I have a friend that always says your memory is what you forget with. So I, I write it down. It's going to help me. Now, if that's not you and you're like, man, I write down. But if I just listen and pay attention, I remember, well, do that then. But listen as a student, not for somebody else, not for how so-and-so needs to hear this or hope he or she's paying attention, but for yourself. What, listen as a student, as a disciple. Number two, listen as a church member. Listen as a church member. 
how can you encourage others with what God is giving you here? How, 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 can you, how can you listen as someone who is going to reproduce this and encourage other people with God's word? Listen as a church member. Number three, listen as a preacher. Listen as a preacher. Your responsibility as a listener of a sermon is to do as much work as I've done. To do as much work as Garrett's done. In the sense of take what has been delivered and apply it even more vigorously in your own life. It is a sermon preached where you're like, man, I, bet I, I wish I could have had more application on that. Well, take it and preach it to your own heart. Do the work to take what God's word is saying and apply it in your life. You ever hear a sermon that's just cold and flat and delivered in a way that doesn't stir your affections? Well, take God's word and deliver it even in a more powerful way to your own heart. Preach it to yourselves. You're not, you're not, you're not the audience. <laughs> Consuming and receiving, you're taking God's word along with me and putting it into your heart. Number four, listen as a missionary. Listen as a missionary. How would you take what it is that you're getting from God's word and listen as an evangelist and as a missionary, not just to receive but to reproduce and to go and to take his word to others? Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging, parakaleo, Encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray that God would give us his help in doing that. Father in heaven, we do ask for empowering of your spirit. God, we see here how important Christian encouragement is. There are people here this morning. We all need this, but some of us may feel that we need this in, in, a, in a very acute sense, in a very tangible, needy way this morning. God, would you use this gathering of your saints and the singing of these songs and the preaching of your word to encourage us? Would you cause conversations to happen? Would you allow us to conference with one another before we leave here today and as we go throughout the rest of our day, as we come back for evening service tonight? God, may we conference with one another in a way that would be mutually upbuilding and, and stirring in our faith. God, build us as your people, we ask. In Christ's name and for his sake, amen.